the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. Got questions concerning elder or state law? Attorney Mike Connors has the answer. He's been recognized as one of New York's top lawyers by New York Magazine and brings nearly 40 years of experience to the table. His office number is 718-238-6500. That's 718-238-6500. Here's Mike Connors. We are gathered here on hallowed ground. Welcome, everyone, to Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. This is Beth Connors. My husband is not here today with us because he's got COVID. But he had a wonderful interview with Al Zambone, who wrote a great book, A Revolutionary Life, about Daniel Morgan. If you do not know who Daniel Morgan was in the Revolutionary War, this is really going to be a treat. And behind the the controls, as usual, is our son, Michael Connors. Hello, everyone. And I'm going, unfortunately, we don't have any answer questions and answers for you today. But I'm going to tell you a little bit about um, one of the reasons that my husband and I enjoyed our, our company early on and eventually fell in love and got married. We both loved history. I grew up, and everybody in the South knows who their ancestors are and what they did. And one of the uh, battles that you'll be listening to later on with Daniel Morgan is one at the Calpians. And I actually had an ancestor that was a soldier at the Calpians, Stephen Truitt. Uh, But I have another story that I would like to tell because... I'm very sentimental, and one of the most wonderful times of my life was when I was a young young child, four, five years old. I spent every summer with my mother's parents, my grandparents, because my father was in med school, and my mother was teaching summer school, and there just wasn't anybody to watch out for me. So I would be with grandmother and granddaddy, but also in the household was my Aunt Linda, who was in high school, and also who lived with us was my grandfather's mother, who my great-grandmother, she sat in a wheelchair 
and I was able to hear all of her stories, and and this is what I'm coming to. The wonderful stories that would be told on the front porch the, during the evenings in Louisiana when we would be shucking the corn and snapping the beans and, oh, my goodness, getting the, everything from the garden ready to be cooked. We'd be sitting there, and Granddaddy would tell a story or grandmother would tell a story and I would just sit there and sometimes it was the same old story all over again but it didn't didn't matter but there was one story that stuck that really I think bothered me when I was little um that's the best way to put it grandmother would tell me the story of when she was a little girl and her grandmother Sarah told my grandmother that, you know, when I was your age, my grandmother was a little baby in the Revolutionary War. So now I'm going to backtrack everybody. My grandmother is telling me the story that her grandmother told her. So my great, great grandmother is relating the story of her grandmother, a baby, in the Revolutionary War. And her story was, as a one-year-old baby, her mother had dragged the children out of the house and ran into the woods. And they ran into the woods because the enemy came. The enemy soldiers came. And her father was a Revolutionary War soldier. And they went in and they got him and they got the other soldiers that were there and they took them out and they hanged them. So now my grandmother at age four was told by her grandmother that her grandmother's namesake, Sarah, had been run out of the house because her father was killed the night by the enemy soldiers. Now, I thought about that, and I thought, oh, my goodness. I'm being told a story from such a long time ago when I was a little girl. I didn't have a concept of the Revolutionary War, but I did have a concept of this little baby who lost her father. If anybody wants to look up the story, it's the Hayes Station Massacre. And the Hayes Station Massacre is the story of a loyalist and his troops, Bloody Bill Cunningham, going after the Patriots um, at, at Hayes Station. And my great-great-grandfather was um, Hayes. And his little baby, little baby Sarah Hayes, was the one that grew up fatherless. And I'm so sorry these days that families don't get, you know, the... We're spread out. We're all spread out, and we don't get to hear those marvelous family stories. But it is with love that I share my story with you, and I hope that you enjoy the tales of Daniel Morgan, a true American patriot, and all he did for everybody, and my ancestor, Stephen Truitt, who is fighting with Daniel Morgan at Cowpens. All right, thank you so much. Coming up, Al Zambone. 
If you're a homeowner age 62 or older and are finding it harder to pay off debt, or how about enjoying your retirement years with less stress? A home equity conversion mortgage may be the answer for you and your family. Hi, this is Frank Melia, a certified mortgage planner, and I've helped countless homeowners all over the tri-state area tap into a little or a lot of their home equity so they can use it right now. Give me a call so our team here at Contour Mortgage can show you how the loan program works and how much you and your family may qualify for. My job is to help you find the best solution for your retirement goals. I do this by educating homeowners with straightforward information and answers. It's free to call and speak with me, Frank Melia, to determine if this mortgage program might be able to help you and your loved ones now. Call and speak with me. I'll answer your questions and help you decide if a reverse mortgage is right for you and your family. Make the call now, 888-954-7463. Once again, that's 888-954-7463, and you could be on your way to a better retirement. Frank Melia, NMLS number 62591, Contour Mortgage Corporation, NMLS number 34384, 990 Stewart Avenue, Suite 660, Garden City, New York, 11530, Licensed Mortgage Banker, New York State Department of Financial Services. How can I protect my family if something happens to me? What if I need to go to a nursing home? What will happen to our savings, our home? What's the best way to give my home to my kids? Who will help us take care of Grandpa? These and many other questions can be answered with a phone call to Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law, PLLC, 718-238-6500. Mike Connors, one of New York Magazine's top lawyers, has over 30 years of estate planning and elder law experience. Mike and his team of professionals will help you protect your assets from probate, taxes, and nursing home costs so you can have peace of mind knowing you and your family will be taken care of and protected. I'm Mike Connors, founder of Connors & Sullivan. People don't plan to fail, they fail to plan. The time to plan is now. I'm Beth Connors. Call today for a free initial consultation with one of our experienced lawyers. Connors & Sullivan in Brooklyn, Queens, Manhattan, and Staten Island. Call 718-238-6500. 718-238-6500 or ConnorsAndSullivan.com. Time now for Connor's Corner, where Mike takes a closer look at topics like history, politics, religion, and more. Here's Mike. Welcome to the Connor's Corner segment of Ask the Lawyer. Uh, You know, a lot of times we do talk about history here today, and, and I think we're talking about one of the most interesting figures of the American Revolution right now, and we're talking to Al Zambone, who's got a book out on Daniel Morgan. The name of the book, Daniel Morgan, A Revolutionary Life. Welcome to Connor's Corner, Al. Well, thanks for having me. Okay. So, you know, some of our audience, they're going to know exactly who Daniel Morgan is. Some people are not going to know what we're talking about. So who was Daniel Morgan? Yeah. Where was he born in his early years? Well, uh, I'd, be very, I'm really, I'd be really happy if, some people actually knew who he was. In my experience, not many people know him uh, at all. Um, he didn't know that much about himself. Um, he shows up in the written record, uh, and he's somewhere in his teenage years. Um, as far as his children knew, his two daughters, uh, he had come, lived in Pennsylvania and New Jersey as a, as a boy. At some point, he had a quarrel with his father and walked away from home and showed up in what would become Winchester, Virginia, at the bottom of the Shenandoah Valley in Virginia, 
And that was as much as he ever said about his background. He never told his children the names of their grandparents. They, they died without knowing who their grandparents were. So Daniel Morgan is a man, like many Americans, uh, who erased his past. Uh, but he took it farther than even many of us do, uh, many have. He just cut himself off completely from his past. Hmm. So where was he at the beginning of the Revolutionary War, let's say 1775-76? Well, I, in many ways, this is I, I find this period between him showing up in the Valley and the Revolution one of the most fascinating periods of his life. He's illiterate, we know, because he signs contracts in the early 1760s uh, with, a, with a mark, with an X. Uh, but by 1768, he can write. Um, he can read and write. During that period, he serves in the French-Indian War with the Virginia militia, uh, gets shot through the face, uh, is flogged, receives 499 lashes for striking a British officer, uh, and he as simultaneously is uh, sort of an independent owner-operator of a wagon and then a wagon business. Uh, he buys land. He gets married. He buys uh, slaves. He works a small acreage, he buys more, and he starts to rise up in the ranks of the society in his county, which is very important in colonial Virginia, is getting ahead in your county politically uh, and socially. It's um, required, almost required by law if you're a white man to do that. So by 1775, he's a captain in the militia, and he's friends with most of the committee of safety for his county, for Frederick County, Virginia. And they appoint him to be captain of a newly formed rifle company, which is then going to march for Boston, Massachusetts. Okay, so this is the time, like, of Bunker Hill. So yeah. what, what, is he, what is he doing in Massachusetts? Where does he form up? The Continental Congress raises a bunch of rifle companies, one of the First things they do, right before they appoint George Washington commander of the new Continental Army, they form these rifle companies from Pennsylvania, Maryland, and Virginia. Morgan marches one of them uh, in about a month. Uh, he marches from northern Virginia all the way to Boston. There's a British army inside of Boston, and there's a mostly New England army that uh, raised from Rhode Island and Connecticut and Hampshire, Massachusetts. Um, they are surrounding the British in Boston, and the Morgan represents, like, now the Army is becoming a continental effort, so hence Continental Army. So Morgan gets there and then is quickly extremely bored uh, because sieges are boring. And he volunteers himself and his men for one of the most audacious expeditions in American military history, which is to march through the backwoods of Maine and attack Quebec City on the St. Lawrence River. So that is what he does in October, November, and December of 1775. Now, what was the reasoning to attack Quebec in in, in the beginning of the winter? I mean, it just doesn't make well, a lot of sense to me. But you know, what was the reasoning? Well, well, they thought they thought they would get there a lot faster than they did, uh, that, which is always the case. Uh, and but in fact, rather than getting there in late October, um, they were blocked by, probably by a combination of a hurricane and nor'easter um they also were deeply ignorant of some of the terrain that was there on the what we call the eastern continental divide um so they they were about a month late and then in the end they don't attack until the midst of a howling blizzard on december 31st 
the reason why they attack is they uh, Canada has been threatening New England and the other colonies uh, since the very beginning of America, since the, since 1650 onwards. Every war in North America is between the 13 the English colonies and the French. So it's kind of a reflexive action to deal with Canada. And so they want to take Canada out of the war, and they want to make it part of the, and they want to make it the fourteenth, the fourteenth colony. So that's the sort of one of the first things that that Washington and the Continental Congress decides to do. So that's the reason for attacking Quebec and taking Canada. And uh, you know, you just may want to mention as a more than a footnote, but who is one of the other generals there? Or who are the well, other generals his, there? His, his a man that he describes as his his friend uh, years later, uh, his his commander of his of the brigade that he marches in is Benedict Arnold. Uh, Arnold's the one who is one of the people that conceives of this audacious journey through the main uh, woods, and Arnold gets them uh, to the walls of Quebec, and then Arnold's one of the two leaders that leads them in the assault, and Morgan. Um, Heck, even in 1781, Morgan re- refers to him as my old friend, um, maybe semi-sarcastically, but I don't think completely sarcastically. All right. Well, obviously, I shouldn't say obviously, but the the Battle of Quebec is a failure for the for the American side. <laughs> yes, and Morgan uh, almost gets killed uh, in is is a POW until July of 1776. And he's a well. He and just about every other officer, everyone's locked up in a series of buildings inside Quebec City. And he's finally exchanged and is on parole for in, until 1777. So he's really out of action for over a year until he finally gets back in the fight in the spring of 1777 okay. uh, and rejoins Washington's army. Okay, so then he, it's we're starting to set the stage where he becomes kind of a hero. Yes, um, he is. Washington has recommended while he's um, while he's officially still a, a POW, uh, Washington has recommended that he be given um, command of a Virginia regiment. Uh, each each colony, each state um, is providing a, a certain number of regiments to the Continental Army. So Morgan will command one, but Washington also imagines something else. He wants a group of Rangers and he wants a group of riflemen, and these are taken from as many states as possible, even New Jersey. Uh, Morgan's the major in Morgan's regiment is actually from northern New Jersey. Uh, somehow there's a rifleman there. So Morgan puts together this group of riflemen, and they're to act as, as scouts and reconnaissance troops and light infantry. And they fight through the summer of the late spring and early summer of 1777 in northern New Jersey, in and around, uh, basically against Wachung Mountain, north of New Brunswick, south of Newark, that whole area is, is a, a, an area of constant skirmishing and battles. And then in August, uh, Washington march, has Morgan march north for uh, Bemis Heights, for Saratoga, to join the Northern Army, commanded by Horatio Gates, which is opposing a British invasion out of Canada. And that's where Morgan becomes, probably becomes first known to a wider audience in the in the United States, because he and his men are key in stopping that army of Burgoynes and winning the two battles of Saratoga 
at uh, first at Freeman's Farm and then later at Bemis Heights about uh, three weeks. There's three, about three weeks in between those two battles. All right. So what 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 does Morgan and his men do? What do they do in the in that campaign, Saratoga campaign? One of the mo- yeah, Morgan has a very mixed experience during the first battle. That nothing works out the way he planned. But one of the most beneficial things he does for the American cause is he keeps the British general John Burgoyne completely ignorant. Uh, he surrounds the camp. They have scouts out every night. They're on patrol. Uh, they're doing very intensive night patrols, and they're keeping Burgoyne from being able to get information and intelligence from the surrounding countryside. There's a loyalist population in the surrounding countryside. There are Indian allies that could have helped Burgoyne, but Morgan cuts him off from information. So Burgoyne is blind because of Morgan's intensive patrolling and scouting. Then on the, at the second battle, the Battle of Venice Heights, Morgan's regiment acts as a kind of enormous sniper rifle. Uh, uh, Morgan is using the whole regiment as a sort of enormous rifle. He's targeting artillery horses, very important. A lot of artillery gets left behind by the British as they retreat after the battle because they have nothing to pull the cannon with. He's targeting officers, uh, captains, generals, um, colonels, a very disproportionate number of officer casualties during that battle. So those are the two things that uh, Morgan does. And he sort of opens up a path with his rifle regiment for the attacks of other line regiments that that are with the Army. Now, maybe you can just explain for a minute uh, what's the difference between a rifle and a musket? And, and most troops carried a musket back then, if, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. Yeah. Yes, they did. So the difference between a rifle and a musket is a rifle has a rifling, uh, and it has a twist. It has a sort of a, a twist inside the barrel, which is meant to revolve the bullet within it uh, and gives it to speed, as we always compare it to a football, the way that the, the flick of the fingers by the quarterback gives us a spin to the football, enables it to fly faster, uh, straighter, uh, more true. A musket is, in effect, what we would now think of as a shotgun. It, the ball literally, if a ball is pushed down a, a musket, uh, it literally rattles on its way out. So it has an effective range, effective aimed range of 50 to 100 yards, which ain't bad. I mean, even modern combat World War II, effective combat range is about 200 yards. So the musket is half of, of, of sort of contemporary combat ranges uh, as, as experienced by Second World War soldiers. But a rifle, you can reach out basically, as, as one gunsmith would say to me, uh, if you can see it, you can hit it. So with a, with a good man who knows what he's doing, and not everyone did, uh, even in 1777, uh, with, a, with a black powder uh, long rifle, can hit whatever one whatever one someone could hit with an M1 Garand in World War II. Uh, difference is, of course, you leave a lot of smoke because you're using black powder, and you ha- it takes a long time to repeat the shot. It takes 30 seconds, uh, making good practice. It takes about 30 seconds to reload a long rifle. A musket can be reloaded in as little as 15 seconds. It's always the advantage of the musket over the rifle at the time is volume of fire. All right. So, uh, in any way, a good deal of officers. How many? How many general officers are killed at Saratoga on the British side? Oh well, now you're pushing me. That okay, I don't I'm, know. All right. uh, very, very famously, very famously, the second, the 
well, the British second in command is is killed at the battle uh, is killed, um, General Fraser, and that creates a, quite a shock throughout the the uh, the ranks. And what's mo- what's more to the effect is it, everyone knows he's being targeted because he takes uh, several of his I think he loses a horse and there's you know there's bullets cutting into his saddle and an aide is killed and finally he's killed. So this is happening up and down, but the, yeah, it's. It's not glamorous to think about killing horses, but killing horses is probably one of the most important things that they do at the battle. All right. So now, okay, the Burgoyne surrenders. Where Where's yeah. Morgan? Morgan is at the surrender. He's Morgan. I think is 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 made officer of the day, which is a sort of a, an honor, a signal honor during a surrender ceremony. Uh, so he is, that's where he is. But the day, literally, I think, I believe the day after the surrender ceremony, he's put on the road back to march and rejoin Washington's army, which is engaged at the time in trying to keep the British from successfully occupying Philadelphia. By this time, a separate British army under William Howe has taken Philadelphia, but they have not yet successfully occupied it because the Delaware River is still blocked by American forces. So Morgan goes to join Washington and prevent that from happening. Uh, he does not succeed, however, in preventing that from happening. All right, you know, we should have mentioned, where's Benedict Arnold at Saratoga? Well, Benedict Arnold is leading the assault. He's leading the assault at the second battle. Uh, in fact, um, probably Morgan's riflemen are following some of the forces that are following Benedict Arnold. Uh, really difficult to describe in, uh, without a map, but they basically they Arnold leads an assault on a fort, which holds the, the sort of the, the wing of the British position, and they and Morgan and bunch Morgan's riflemen and a number of New England uh, troops. They take this fort, and after that, that's all she wrote. You take, he's take, you've taken the end of the British fortification. Uh, their, their sort of lines are hanging in the air. They have to retreat. And that's where Arnold was shot for the second time in the leg. He was shot through the leg uh, once at Quebec, and then second time at uh, Saratoga. Um, based the operation, then will remove, basically one leg will be always an inch or two inches shorter than the other. Um, and that's famously when Arnold supposedly said that I wish it had been my heart. All right. If well, it had been, he would be a great American hero. Yeah, yeah, obviously from what we're saying. Okay, so Morgan now is he's going back to join Washington around Philadelphia. So what happens then? Uh, there's some skirmishing. Uh, Morgan, uh, Morgan and his troops don't do as well uh, then um, as they had at Saratoga. He gets uh, pretty roughly handled by his British light infantry. And then they march to Valley Forge. And Morgan uh, is, uh, is at Valley Forge for a couple months. Um, he is engaging in his usual scouting and skirmishing, which he's very good at. Uh, but he gets bored. Uh, camp is boring. Uh, winter, winter in camp is very boring. And so he, gets, he goes home uh, for a couple months and then comes back in the spring which a lot of actually a, a large number of officers tried to do uh, and actually did do even during Valley Forge. So he's, uh, he fights uh, with the army as it marches out of Valley Forge to intercept the British army as it, as it evacuates Philadelphia in May of 1778. 
and Morgan is involved in inconclusive skirmishing around the time of the Battle of Monmouth. He doesn't really participate in the main battle, which is a, a regret to him for the rest of his life. British successfully retreat back into New York City, and then Morgan is once again kind of stir crazy. Uh, he's got a lot of administrative responsibilities. The rifle regiment is broken apart and sent out to the American the, the frontier Indian race to do with himself. He's got a Virginia regular Virginia to command, but that's not really his goal in life. He wants to do something bigger than that, and nothing bigger shows up. Well, eventually he goes south. So what happens? What's what set the stage for that? He leaves. Yeah, he leaves the army. He leaves the army in disgust. Um, and Washington is very angry with him about that. Um, there's no particular reason for him to leave the army other than that Morgan felt uh, when they form a new corps of light infantry, a sort of brigade of light infantry, Morgan expects that he will be made, put in command of it. That doesn't happen. It can't happen for complex and very rational political reasons. Uh, Virginia can't have more many more brigadier generals than it already has. So Morgan resigns and goes home. And he goes home for almost two years. And eventually his friend Horatio Gates, Victor at Saratoga, manages to persuade Morgan to come south with him. Morgan says, okay, all right, but I want to be made a brigadier general, damn it. And he waits for that to come, waits for that promotion to come. Does not come, does not come. And finally he does get news that Gates has lost an army of about 5,000 Americans, has been completely annihilated at Camden, South Carolina. And that's my favorite mo moment in the whole Morgan story is with just that, just on that news, he saddles up a horse, takes another horse to sell, uh, probably takes an enslaved uh, man along with him, a couple friends who are going to ride south with him, and they head south. And they, he heads south to join the army, which looks like it's on the verge of utter collapse and is about to lose Georgia and both Carolinas. Uh, to become, again, British colonies. So who takes over after, well, I didn't say, we didn't say Gates. You know, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. But a after so, Gates, did he resign or was replaced? He was pushed. Okay. Uh, he, uh, in fact, uh, he did not know that he was being relieved until his relief showed up. Uh, and that is Nathaniel Green, uh, one of probably my uh, favorite character in the American Revolution, just about, even more than Morgan, um, who's a, a former Quaker from Rhode Island uh, and has taught himself everything he knows about warfare, uh, which by late 1780 has, has actually amounts to quite a lot. And he shows up and replaces Gates. And together, I think, Green and Morgan form one of the most uh, unique and competent uh, military partnerships in American history. Uh, Green is uh, a great one for studying maps. He has Thaddeus Kosciuszko, a Polish engineer, make maps of every river and ford and creek in the Carolinas. He studies these maps, he prepares, and determines that he will now violate every tenet of 18th century military strategy. He will divide his army in the face of the enemy. He has to do that because of logistics. They're in Charlotte Courthouse, modern Charlotte, North Carolina. Uh, armies have been around Charlotte Courthouse for uh, about a year by that time. There's nothing to eat, particularly nothing to eat for horses. And horses mean everything in the Southern Campaign because every militia 
member comes with a horse. So he disperses the army and so that horses have something to eat, so the men have something to eat. He And he figures that the British will have to split their army uh, to shadow him. Uh, if they don't, he has plans with how to deal with that. But sure enough, he's right. Uh, Charles Cornwallis, Lord Cornwallis, who's the British commander in the South, sees this and decides that he will split his army, and he sends his most hard-charging and competent uh, junior commander, Bannister Tarleton, to intercept the force being led by Morgan into western South Carolina, deep into what they all, everyone called the back country. It's a little bit of the Wild West in South Carolina. All right, so Morgan's there. Carlton is following him. And, you know, at that point, what is the mood in, in the United States? It looks like the South is lost, correct? It, it's kind of probably in the North, everyone thought the South was lost. Now, to be fair, since Camden, the, which is an epic disaster, there have been numerous victories by local militia, most importantly at Kings Mountain in September, October of 1780. And that had really hurt the, especially the loyalist cause in South Carolina, North Carolina. This is an insurgency. This is a civil war that's going on in the Carolinas and Georgia. This is, you know, anywhere between, <laughs> who can tell, but different districts have different proportions of loyalists versus uh, patriots or Whigs or whatever you want to call them. So in backcountry South Carolina, the loyalists are very strong and they are very well organized and they form militias and they form even form local governments of the kind. So the whole goal of the war in the Carolinas is if you're a if you're an American, you want to build up your militia and make sure the other militias are are dispersed, killed, that their supplies are captured, uh, and vice versa. If you're British, you want to suppress the American militia and build up your lo- loyalist militia. So by moving an army into the backcountry, by moving an American army or a British army, you're, that's how you achieve that. So Morgan is moving into the Carolina backcountry in order to suppress loyalist militia as much as he's doing anything else. Also, as he would say, the Green's orders are spirit up the people. That means to give them protection, give them protection against loyalist neighbors and loyalist militia who will otherwise come and take their grain and their horses and their guns, just as a form of tax, but also as a form of self-supply. That's why Morgan, that's what, that's the, primary reason for Morgan being there, other than as finding more food for his part of, of Green's Southern Army. All right, so let's set the stage for uh, for Cowpens. Yeah, so uh, Tarleton moves to block Green from moving farther into uh, South Carolina backcountry. Uh, Morgan gets word that Tarleton has moved in front of him. He's actually... It's very difficult to find food in the South Carolina backcountry after a year of warfare there. His army is widely dispersed around a five to ten mile arc along a river. And so he decides to bring his army together. But if he brings his army together, he can't feed it anymore. So if he brings his army together, he has to start retreating towards North Carolina. Logistics determine everything. Just ask the Russians in Ukraine. So he starts to retreat very slowly towards the North Carolina border. Tarleton, 
believes in speed above all things. Speed provides surprise. So Tarleton moves quickly to intercept Morgan, to catch up with him. And he pushes Morgan hard. And he's moving faster than Morgan can move. So eventually, Morgan comes to a place, a area of which there are probably tens, if not hundreds, in Western Carolinas called cow pens. There are a lot of cowboys in, in the Carolinas prior to the revolution. They drive cattle on foot, and these cows, they bed down every night in some sort of like rural savanna area, like a field with trees scattered around it. And these are all called cow pens. There are all sorts of them in the backcountry. This one, this cow pens, Morgan looks at it, and he says, okay, this is where I'm going to meet Tarleton. So he very carefully forms up his army. He revises his plans. He has his educated Maryland aides write up a plan, distributes it to his officers, and very famously, uh, is attested to by numerous of his of his soldiers in their memoirs and also in their in their claims for pensions. Remember him walking from campfire to campfire that night, uh, describing to his men exactly what he wanted them to do. It's quite unprecedented, actually. I, I can't think of any other instance in the revolution where a commander did that with his men. And the result was that sometime by three or four in the morning, his officers and his men knew exactly where he wanted them and exactly what he wanted them to do. He had come up with a sort of a defense in depth over a very curious rolling terrain, not a hill, just sort of dips and swales and very gentle sort of grooves in the landscape. And he had three lines he formed up, a line of skirmishers, a line of Carolina and Georgia militia, and finally a line of militia and state troops, and rifle, uh, including riflemen, and some Maryland and Delaware Continentals, who are the backbone of the Southern Army, Maryland and Delaware Continentals, who've been in the war since the very beginning and who are very tough and professional troops by that time. And to support them, he's got about 100 to 150 cavalrymen uh, who act as his reserve. And that's how he fights the battle. So... How does it start? Where, do, where Where's Tarleton? What's he doing? <laughs> Tarleton comes up to the battlefield, takes a quick look, and begins to deploy his troops. As I said, Tarleton believes in speed. Now, uh, some new battlefield archaeology, which is telling us a different story about the battle than we've uh, known of before. But there's also, his view is probably blocked by some uh, uh, large clusters of native bamboo that people in South Carolina just call uh, long cane. And as they deploy, uh, they're under fire. They're under fire from the rifle, uh, the skirmishers that are up in front who are all riflemen and who are doing execution, as Tarleton will, will say later. So under the pressure of that rifle fire, as they deploy, they can't shake themselves into a long line. Guys are jumping off. They're already moving forward up the battlefield because – you know, it sucks to be under fire and just stand there. And even the most trained troops in the 18th century have a hard time doing that. You have to be shooting back. You have to be moving psychologically. You have to do something. So the line is ragged as it moves forward. It's probably moving forward, not in a straight line, but in sort of a, an upside-down V, uh, the, where the, the wings haven't uh, formed yet when the middle of the, the line is, is advancing. So the line marches forward raggedly. It receives uh, a couple more, then it receives two to three volleys from the line of militia, 
that Morgan has lined up. Morgan has given strict instructions that they, after firing two or three times, it's not clear which, they are then to withdraw, which they do, and they withdraw or, with some orderliness. At, at one point in their withdrawal, Tarleton orders his cavalry to charge. They catch up with the retreating militia, and there's a moment where it looks like the militia is going to run for their horses and ride off. But along come the Continental Cavalry, uh, led by George Washington's second cousin, William Washington, and they drive the British back. So the militia are then able to reform themselves and prepare for a second phase of the fight. By this time, Tarleton has put in his reserves, and now they're coming up to the third and final line that Morgan has established, that line that's anchored by the Maryland and Delaware Continentals. There's a firefight. Not clear how long it lasts, probably no more than 10 minutes. At some point, an order is given. Uh, the, Tarleton's reserve is coming up onto the American right, and there's an order given to refuse the right. That means that the line is supposed to, as it were, walk backwards to come at a sort of a 45-degree angle. So you can imagine that the line, rather than being straight, will now look like a broken line with a 45-degree angle at the end. That way they're not, they don't have people shooting at their sides. Um, the order is misunderstood. Instead of sort of walking backwards, the units at the, on the American right turn, face about and start to march off. And rather than being isolated, all the rest of the units in that third line turn around and march off. Morgan sees this. He's busy rallying the militia. And he rides up to John Eager Howard, who's the uh, lieutenant colonel on the Maryland line, commands that third line on the battlefield. And he asks, in effect, what the hell is going on? Only it was probably solder than that. Uh, Howard says these men are not beaten. No beaten men ever retreated so. Morgan looks. He agrees that this is clearly the case. And he says, I'm going to find a place for you to stop. When you get there, turn around, fire, and give them the bayonet. And that's exactly what happens. Uh, they march forward probably another 20, 40 yards. They halt, they turn about, they face, form line, and they deliver a, a volley of fire into the approaching British, who by this time, their line is completely ragged. They're scattered, held to breakfast. They think they've won. And all of a sudden, they're under extreme fire. They receive at least one volley. They probably receive two. And then those who have bayonets charge with them. Those who do not charge with club muskets, and those are the that's the Carolina militia. They're coming swooping around the American right and now attacking the, the British. And then simultaneously, William Washington leads a cavalry charge. So the British suddenly find themselves, they've walked into a bag, and now the bag is closing on them. All right, the well, results are epic. Yeah. Yeah. They uh, basically, in the end, the only people uh, that escape are all those British guys who are still alive on top of a horse. So something like 100 British cavalrymen managed to make it away. Everyone else is killed, wounded, or captured. Uh, probably about 900, 950 prisoners. Uh, several artillery pieces, you know, all the flags, instruments for band, you know, the usual sort of uh, the usual list of a uh, booty. Uh, and plunder from a, a 18th century uh, European army. And by 10 o'clock, it's all over. 
And by noon, Morgan has his prisoners are on the road. They are marching away, and his men are after them. So the battle probably took at most an hour, uh, probably less, and over by 10. And by noon, Morgan is heading for the North Carolina border as hard as he possibly can. What, what was the effect of the battle in Europe and, and in the north of the United States? What was the impact? Um, it's difficult to say about what it was in Europe or or the north. By the time news gets to England, it blends together with a sort of other litany of, of, of failures or of, of victories that aren't really victories. Um, yeah, the, uh, the real impact, the real impact is probably yet to be felt um, because the real impact is that it draws Charles Cornwallis and makes him decide to pursue Morgan. He's going to pursue Morgan to the ends of the earth. And he gets his army on the road as soon as he's heard about the British defeat. And he pursues Morgan up to the Catawba River, uh, south of, of modern Charlotte, uh, North Carolina. And he uh, is desperate to catch up with Morgan and sort of redeem the failure, that Tar uh, redeem Charleston's failure and his failure uh, as, as the commander in chief. So that's the immediate thing. And that Cornwallis is through a long series of circumstances. Uh, Cornwallis's decision to pursue Morgan, uh, to pursue him to such an extent that to catch up with him, he burns all his wagons except two, uh, which to keep his ambulances, burns his supply train. He destroys everything to move faster. That will eventually lead him to Yorktown, Virginia, in October 1781, and the, and the final, you know, battle upon which the revolution uh, depends. And so that's really the importance of Cowpens. It draws Cornwallis into a kind of madness. Uh, I've never found an adequate explanation for, from anyone for why Cornwallis chooses to do that, other than just the absolute the, the, the sting and the humiliation of Morgan's victory at Cowpens. Now we're going to we're running out of time, so can we summarize what happens to Morgan? Is he is he at Yorktown? He is not. He is uh, by. As I, as I said, he's been wounded multiple times in his life. Uh, he, his body has some severe operational mileage on it. And uh, he gets really badly sick during Cornwallis's pursuit of, of, of his army uh, through the, across the rivers of North Carolina. In fact, he's pretty close to death uh, by late February, early March, 1781. Uh, he thinks so, at least. And he uh, takes some time to recuperate uh, through 1781. He is part of the American army prior to Yorktown. Uh, when Lafayette is commanding the American army in Virginia, Morgan is able, healthy enough to finally be able to go and join him. But then he's attacked again by these tremendous, probably spinal pains, um, sciatica, all, all sorts of, all sorts of, of, of pain, a great deep pain that sometimes makes him black out and, and drop, drop in his tracks, as he, as he says. So, he recovers after the revolution and uh, establishes himself um, as a major landowner, um, especially of Western lands, Kentucky and the Ohio Valley. And eventually in the late 1790s, he even elected to Congress. So what's his legacy? Why did you write this book? What's so important about Daniel Morgan? And again, we're, we are running out of time. So in like, let's say two minutes. Yeah. Um, 
so Daniel Morgan is uh, what I found. What I find interesting about Daniel Morgan is that I, the kid, you know, he's basically a homeless vagrant um, who becomes a congressman and probably owns a hundred thousand acres of land. That's an interesting story right there. But in the middle of that, he becomes one of the America's finest battlefield commanders. So already he's an interesting person to write about. He's an interesting person psychologically to write about too, because as I also said, this is a guy who completely cuts himself off from his past, and that's just interesting makes him a really interesting person. I also find him interesting because he is, to my mind, he is all that Daniel Boone and David Crockett have sort of become in the American imagination. But in many ways, he's a much more impressive figure than either of them. And he's a builder. He, You can still go to his little area of the Shenandoah Valley and look around. You can see what he built. You can see the things that he created, his houses, his uh, grist mills, Basically, the, the political entity and institutions that he helped create, and that's what very makes him very impressive to me as well. All right. Well, Al, thank you very much. Now, out there, if you want to learn more about Daniel Morgan, pick up the book, Daniel Morgan, A Revolutionary Life by Al Zambone. Thank you very much for being on Counter's Corner, and, and thank you for bringing history to life. All right. Thank you so much. It's been a complete pleasure. Do you have somewhere to sleep? Did you eat today? Are you making ends meet? For thousands of New Yorkers, the answer is no. For children and youth, adults, seniors, people struggling with addiction or mental illness, and for the isolated, Catholic Charities of Brooklyn and Queens is there. With 160 programs and more than 4,500 units of affordable housing, Catholic Charities is one of the largest multi-service charitable organizations in the nation. We help change lives and build communities. If you or someone you know needs assistance, call 718-722-6001 or visit CCB. I have children. How can I protect them if something happens? Will my to assets be lost if I go into a nursing home? We have property. How will it affect the ones still here? Who will help us take care of Grandma? These questions can be answered by calling 718-238-6500 for a free consultation from Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law, providing dedicated, caring, and highly responsive legal services. They're focused on issues that matter to you, protection of your family, preservation of your assets, and respect of your wishes with dignity. That's all I want from a lawyer, making it easier for my children. Call 718-238-6500. Get a free consultation. Connors & Sullivan's clients don't get lost in the cracks. They have dedicated attorneys who know their clients and the issues that matter most to them. Connors & Sullivan's estate planning, elder law, and probate attorneys work closely with every client. Don't leave behind problems for your family. Call 718-238-6500 and get a free consultation today. Connors & Sullivan. Plan now for later. Do you know how many Christians live in the Middle East? Six million people. Do you know how many Christians need your help? Every single one. Do you know what we can do? With St. Francis in Beirut, we can give them hope. We can give them medicines. We can give them medical equipment. We can give them everything they're looking for because some others decided to remove Christianity from the Middle East. But if we will help them every single day, not just to feed them or clothing, it's all about giving them another day with the idea that they are recognized that we love them, there are cousins, sisters, there are roots. So, St. Francis in Beirut, it's all about helping Christians. And you can be part of that help too. If you want to help Father Paul in his mission, send your donations to St. Francis in Beirut, 213 Stanton Street, New York, New York, 10002. 
If you're a homeowner age 62 or older and are finding it harder to pay off debt, or how about enjoying your retirement years with less stress? A home equity conversion mortgage may be the answer for you and your family. Hi, this is Frank Melia, a certified mortgage planner, and I've helped countless homeowners all over the tri-state area tap into a little or a lot of their home equity so they can use it right now. Give me a call so our team here at Contour Mortgage can show you how the loan program works and how much you and your family may qualify for. My job is to help you find the best solution for your retirement goals. I do this by educating homeowners with straightforward information and answers. It's free to call and speak with me, Frank Melia, to determine if this mortgage program might be able to help you and your loved ones now. Call and speak with me. I'll answer your questions and help you decide if a reverse mortgage is right for you and your family. Make the call now, 888-954-7463. Once again, that's 888-954-7463, and you could be on your way to a better retirement. Frank Melia, NMLS number 62591, Contour Mortgage Corporation, NMLS number 34384, 990 Stewart Avenue, Suite 660, Garden City, New York, 11530, Licensed Mortgage Banker, New York State Department of Financial Services. Hi, Kevin McCullough. Are you or your parents' assets protected from nursing home bills? Did you know these bills can exceed $15,000 a month? People work their entire lives to live comfortably in retirement, but when people become ill and need to go to a nursing home or receive home care, the bills can drain their assets, leaving many people bankrupt. The good news is that you can prevent that from happening if you plan in advance. Connors and Sullivan's lawyers can customize a plan that specifically protects your interests, including your home. Schedule a free comprehensive telephone consultation with Mike Connors to discuss your issues and concerns from the security of your home. Call today, 718-238-6500, 718-238-6500. Don't let nursing home bills take your life's savings and leave you and your loved ones bankrupt. Don't wait another minute. Mike Connors can take you through the process by telephone and start a plan designed for you today. That's 718-238-6500. 718-238-6500. The preceding pre-recorded program paid for by Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law, PLLC. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.